0: Hello and welcome to the new Fixing Healthcare podcast series, Diving Deep. I am one of your hosts, Jeremy Kaur. I'm also the host of the popular New Books of Medicine podcast and CEO at Executive Podcast Solutions. With me is Dr. Robert Pearl. For 18 years, Robert was the CEO of the Permanente Medical Group, the nation's largest physician group. He is currently a Forbes contributor, a professor at both the Stanford University School of Medicine and Business, and author of the best-selling books, Mistreated, Why We Think We're Getting Good Healthcare and Why We're Usually Wrong, and Uncaring, How the Culture of Medicine Kills Doctors and Patients. All profits from his books go to Doctors Without Borders. If you want more information on a broad range of healthcare topics, you can go to his website, robertperlmd.com. In this episode of Diving Deep, I plan to ask him about the complex intersection of medical culture and the world outside of healthcare. And I want to help readers understand why the current generation of high priced medications aren't much better than the ones that came before. Robbie, you wrote an article titled Why Omicron is about to make Americans act immorally inappropriately. It was the most read article on Forbes that week with over 450,000 individuals accessing it in the first three days. What made you decide to write it? Jeremy, a friend
1: called and he asked me for medical advice. He's healthy, but he developed a dry cough with mild congestion across the weekend. He took a self-administered home COVID test. It turned up negative, but he remained suspicious that he could be infected. He was set to fly from New York to Los Angeles early the next week for a conference, and he dreaded the thought of infecting other passengers. He knew from our podcast, Coronavirus the Truth, that these home antibody tests can have false negatives, and he wanted to know what I would do if it were me. I recommended a PCR test if he wanted to be certain. When the lab results came back positive, he chose not to fly. And he spent the next five days isolating at home. What I realized from his experience was two things. First, when it comes to COVID, most people today are very respectful of others. But as I thought about it more and more, and I considered my friend's dilemma, I realized that in the future, this concern for others will dissipate.
0: Can you elaborate on both realizations?
1: Jeremy, although 91% of Americans no longer consider COVID a serious crisis, and social distancing is at an all-time low, most people currently are making a major effort to avoid infecting others. As a society, and from a cultural perspective, we expect that people who test positive for COVID will stay home and they'll minimize contact with others. As a consequence, what we've seen is that four in 10 workers have missed work in 2022 from exposure or actual disease. In fact, currently, according to the Axios survey on the topic of COVID, the number one concern of Americans related to Omicron is spreading the virus to people who are at higher risk of serious illness. You might think that concern would be the result of guidance from the CDC or information from some other public health organization, but it's not. Instead, their caution and their protective actions relative to others reflect cultural
0: norms. Robbie, can you explain what you mean by cultural norms? Jeremy, culture is the values, the beliefs,
1: and the expected behaviors of people inside a group. It could be a nation, a religion, or a social organization. And we know that it's a cultural norm when everyone acts the same, but there are no written rules or regulations or laws requiring it. Often, these actions aren't part of a conscious process, but it's one that happens subconsciously and automatically. What we observe is that people's actions evolve over time. Culture changes as the circumstances evolve. These shifts can be economic, they can be technological advancements, or they could be medical threats. Call it what you will, groupthink, peer pressure, or just the fear of violating cultural taboos. People in any group act similarly to each other. And relative to COVID, Americans today don't want to put others in harm's way. And by the way, that's true, according to Axios polls, regardless of party political affiliation or vaccination status.
0: Robbie, can you give listeners a few examples of what's immoral today that will be culturally appropriate in the future?
1: Jeremy, it's obvious that predicting the exact actions individuals will take in the future, that's not impossible. But I can offer three examples of what I believe is likely to happen. First, a factory worker who tests positive over the weekend for COVID will still go to work on Monday without a mask, informing no one of his infection. A vacationer with mild COVID symptoms will refuse to postpone her spa weekend and shall continue to avail herself of massages, facials, and group yoga classes as though she were totally healthy. Finally, a couple wanting for the past two years to have a large indoor wedding with, let's say, 200-plus guests knows that the odds are that following the event, as many as a dozen people may become infected, and that some of those guests could even be elderly or immunosuppressed and face a risk of severe illness or even death. And yet, the couple will proceed in the future, as they might not have over the past two years, because at some point, they have no choice but to go ahead and have the matrimonial cer- ceremony that they have dreamed of, and they don't see any opportunity or value
0: in waiting any longer. Robbie, why do you believe this change in behavior will happen? Jeremy...
1: It's not that people will suddenly become less empathetic or more callous. They'll simply be adjusting to new social mores that are brought about by the current unique viral strain, the one we call Omicron. Invariably, huge external changes produce an evolution in culture, regardless of the exact shift that happens. To understand this process in the context of COVID, listeners must understand how the Omicron variant spreads compared to other viruses. Scientists now know that Omicron, and its many decimal-laden strains, is BA.2, BA.2.12.1. And coming in now and growing, it's BA.4 and BA.5, and there'll be more after that. This is the most infectious, fastest-spreading respiratory virus in history. The Mayo Clinic has labeled the COVID variant that we face today as hyper-contagious. To give you an example of how rapidly transmission can occur, according to a report in Scientific American, quote, a single case could give rise to six cases after four days, 36 cases after eight days, 216 cases after 12 days. As a result, researchers predict that 100 million Americans will become infected with Omicron this year alone. And that includes individuals who have new infections, reinfections, and vaccination
0: breakthroughs. Robby, what else besides this immense transmissibility will drive the process? In addition to Omicron's
1: high transmissibility, the virus is also seasonless. Whereas influenza arrives each winter and exits in the spring, Americans will continue to experience high levels of COVID infection year-round, and that's for the foreseeable future. That means that people can't say, I'll get married in the summer when the the risk disappears, as they might with the flu. Businesses can't just ask employees to work overtime now while their colleagues are at home recovering. Since year round, people will be coming down with the virus and there are limits to the sacrifices individuals and families can make. With its 60 plus mutations, immense transmissibility and lack of seasonality, Omicron will infect not only our respiratory systems, but also our culture. Its unique characteristics will drive Americans to deny and ignore the risks of infection. They won't be more callous or less empathetic to others. The culture will make taking these new actions acceptable. The external factors will provide no other options It's just not possible for Americans to live every day for the rest of their lives with the restrictions and expectations of today.
0: Robbie, please say more about culture and how it evolves. Jeremy,
1: culture, that we said it's the shared values, norms, and belief of a group of people, doesn't change because someone decides that it should. It evolves because circumstances change. In the first year of the pandemic, the risk of hospitalization and death were high. As a result, people socially distanced and isolated in order to diminish the risk of catching the disease. Wearing a mask, avoiding groups of people, and keeping at least six feet apart when outside These were the norms that we all followed. But that's changed. Now for people who are vaccinated and boosted and relatively healthy, the risk of severe disease is low. But the chances of catching a breakthrough infection are high and they grow with each new mutant variant. You know, if as the epidemiologists are predicting, 100 million Americans one-third of the total population become infected with Omicron this year, everyone will know multiple people with the disease. You know, in year one of the pandemic, I think I could name fewer than a handful of individuals who were infected. This year, I could easily name 50. And we observe dozens of our friends or colleagues having been infected and all of them have recovered, what do we see? We see transmission as inevitable and the risks dramatically less. The human mind uses a process called heuristics. These are the rules of thumb. We can't quite figure out how dangerous COVID is, but as we equate the risk of dying from this Omicron variant to the flu, what our minds start to question is why, if we don't mask up and socially distance each winter when the flu arrives, why would we do so for Omicron in the current time period? As a result of this change in perception and perspective, what we'll see are more and more people going to work even when they're infected. We'll see more people on trains and planes coughing and congested, who never would have considered doing so following a positive COVID test. We'll see large indoor celebrations taking place without any added safety measures, despite the risks to the most vulnerable attendees. And the reason we'll do it is that all these activities are the types of things we used to do in the context of the winter colds. We sometimes would go to work. We sometimes would go out in public. We continue to hold significant family events, and we'll start doing that for COVID despite the added risks that that creates. Of course, amid these changes, health officials will continue to urge caution, just as they have for more than two years. But it won't make a difference. Culture eats science for breakfast. Americans will increasingly follow the herd and stop heeding public safety warnings. Robbie, do you see evidence this cultural shift has begun? Jeremy, cultural doesn't shift in one large leap. It happens in a series of steps. First, a few people break the rules, and then others follow. Think back to my friend who had taken the first test being negative at home, and out of an abundance of caution, does the PCR test and doesn't proceed with his trip. Maybe next time, a year from now, he'll decide he'd rather not miss the conference. He won't test himself at all. And when he returns home, he'll tell his friends he felt sick the whole trip, but he's okay now. And when they ask, do you think you might have had COVID? He won't give a direct answer. He'll reply with a cultural response. He'll ask them, what difference would it have made? I'm fully vaccinated and boosted. And so we will go on. The next time someone in a social circle feels under the weather, whether he has a positive test or not, he's likely to proceed. And we can see these steps happening in the cultural change process. Think back, to the White House Correspondents Dinner that we discussed on our previous Coronavirus The Truth show. Last year, the event was totally canceled. This year, the guests had to show proof of vaccination or have a negative same-day COVID test. However, the hotel staff who worked the event were not required to either prove vaccination or have a negative test. Following the event, you could read in the media about several high-profile attendees who got sick with COVID, but so far, none of them required hospitalization or experienced severe disease. Out of this, the lesson most attendees learned was that what they did this year was sufficiently careful. And a year from now, assuming no major mutations cause the virus to become more lethal, we can predict that all restrictions will be dropped. You know, ultimately, culture, not science, dictates how people behave. It influences their thoughts and actions. It alters their values and beliefs. It's hard. In fact, I would say it's impossible to imagine that people in society would be willing to live a constrained life forever. Progressively, the high transmissibility, this lack of seasonality, and the relatively mild symptoms it produces for people who aren't immunocompromised will lead individuals to ignore the harm that Omicron can inflict. You know, in some ways, it's similar to the danger of driving fast on wet streets. It's not that we don't know that we're taking a greater risk. It's just that we don't see the the challenge. We don't see the accident happening to us. We see the risk as less than it is from an objective scientific perspective. The same is true now about the danger of transmitting this virus. From the perspective of today's culture, going to work on infected means someone could become infected. And we think of that today as inappropriate and immoral but that's not how we're going to see it in the future. We're going to be oblivious to the consequences. We may say someone could become sick, but they can become sick in a variety of places. We won't see that as us doing it to them, and we won't see the risk that our actions take. Over time, going to work when only minimally sick will feel responsible and appropriate, since most people will do it just as they continue to go to the office now when they get a mild winter cold. That is how culture works. That is how it evolves.
0: Robbie, let's shift to a completely different rule. And that is the one contributing to why our nation continues to produce and pay for drugs that underachieve. How have we done lately? Jeremy, we haven't done very well. Since this time last
1: year, the US Food and Drug Administration, that's the FDA, has granted approval for 43 new medications. The press releases for these drugs would lead people to conclude that a pharmaceutical revolution is already underway and that the drug industry is ushering in a brave new era of miraculous medical advances. The truth, That's far less flattering. Despite enormous hype and dozens of new medications flooding the market each year, major pharmaceutical breakthroughs are exceedingly rare. The overwhelming majority of these highly advertised drugs represent
0: minimal, if any improvement, over existing treatments. Does this lack of major progress result from a lack of scientific know-how? No, Jeremy. Drug companies have the technical expertise
1: and research ability to do much more than they do today, despite the protestations that the process is too expensive. Of course, the search for a true breakthrough medication isn't easy. But rather than science and money being the limiting factor, what blocks the way is an unwritten rule of healthcare, one that has guided nearly all pharmaceutical research and development efforts of the 21st century. And that rule is that in order to maximize drug company profits, businesses should minimize the risk of market failure. Phrased differently, rather than making the investments needed to create the huge breakthroughs that people need, drug companies Currently, focus mainly on the opportunities which have a higher likelihood of success, even when the medication manufactured won't be much better than what's available today.
0: Robbie, has this uh, reticence to take risks always been the case? No, Jeremy. You know, to the contrary, in the previous century,
1: before the term Wonder Drug became applied to any and every new FDA-approved medication. Drug companies almost always swung to the fences. You know, consider the incredible breakthroughs of the 20th century that has saved countless lives. There's insulin, discovered in 1921 to treat diabetes. And penicillin, infection-fighting antibiotic, derived from mold in 1928. There's mechlorethamine, a 1940s weapon of chemical warfare turned cancer-fighting agent that's now used or its derivatives in many chemotherapy drugs. And there's life-saving psychiatric medication like chlorpromazine, which is often known as Thorazine, that was created in 1951. There's the birth control pill, approved by the FDA in 1960 and statins like Lipitor that have reduced heart disease dramatically. And thanks to a series of medications beginning with AZT in 1987, HIV AIDS has become a chronic disease for people infected with the virus. It's, not, it's no longer the death sentence that had been at the start of the pandemic. As much as we take these medications for granted now, Success was far from guaranteed at the start of the development process. For each of these medications, the research and development was intense and time-consuming. The go-to-market costs were massive, with the potential to bankrupt the underwriting drug companies involved. But despite the expensive risks, pharmaceutical leaders in the last century were driven by an intrinsic desire to save lives. As George Merck said in 1950, at the end of his 25 year run as Merck CEO, we quote, we never try to forget that medicine is for the people. It is not for the profits. The profits will follow.
0: Robbie, when did the rules about maximizing drug benefit versus avoiding risk of development begin to change?
1: Jeremy, you're a historian. And if I get any of this not quite right, please let me know. But I believe that most historians trace it back to the 1980s. Newly elected President Ronald Reagan pulled back government regulations. This sent the stock market soaring. Pharmaceutical shares skyrocketed more than 950% over the next 12 years. By the 1990s, outsized CEO salaries and exorbitant drug prices had become the norm. Protecting those financial gains became the focus of pharmaceutical companies. The best way to do that was for drug manufacturers to minimize the risk of a drug development failure. What their CEOs realized is that it can be very profitable, to bring to market a medication with only a minor tweak to a proven drug, and it could be very costly to invest hundreds of million dollars in a great idea that would radically improve people's health, but might not pan out. To spotlight the difference in approach, consider that between 1960 and 1980, prescription drug sales remained fairly static as a percent of US gross domestic product consuming only 5% of all medical costs. Between 1980 and 2000, sales tripled. Today, prescription drug expenditures exceed $460 billion a year, and they now account for 16.7% of all health cares spent in our country.
0: Robby, we keep hearing from drug company CEOs that the problem is the cost of R&D and that if they weren't so profitable, medical advances would stop. How accurate is this argument? Jeremy, Pharma leaders love to trumpet how expensive
1: and time-consuming it is to bring a new drug to market. They collectively assert that ever-rising prices, higher profits are needed to cover accelerated investments in researching developing new and better medications to protect Americans. Their message has found the receptive audience among patients. Today, 68% of Americans believe that the cost of R&D is a major contributing factor to high drug prices. The data, on the other hand, tell a very different story about where that money goes. One report found that nine of 10 top drug makers spent billions more on marketing than r&d another investigation noted that 80 cents of every dollar in prescription drug sales go to something other than r&d including profit overhead and taxes no one should be confused drug companies are not struggling to make ends meet or afford the cost of r&d in fact a 2019 analysis found that drug makers could afford to lose one trillion dollars in sales, and still be the nation's most profitable industry sector.
0: Can you give a couple of examples of high-priced medications whose value is either non-existent or small? Sure, happy to do so. Two recent FDA approvals, Adderhelm,
1: the first new Alzheimer medication over two decades, and Trodelvi, a targeted treatment for aggressive breast cancer, demonstrate that drug makers aren't bringing breakthrough drugs to the market, despite the high prices and industry hype. So far, the companies behind these two drugs have issued a combined total of 70 press releases about their respective flagship drugs. Notwithstanding the sheer quantity of promotion, neither drug will have a meaningfully positive impact on the lives of people with Alzheimer's or breast cancer. Let's look at Attohelm. Two years before its approval, Biogen halted testing amid inconclusive and concerning results. In trials, the drug wasn't shown to preserve intellectual function for patients, but rather than abandoning the medication or pausing to invest in additional R&D, the company filed for accelerated approval, which the FDA granted against the cautions and protests of its scientific advisory committee. Upon approval, Adelhelm was projected to earn upward of $112 billion in annual sales for the drug manufacturer. It had an initial price tag of $56,000, which was five times greater than its estimated value by experts in the field. This controversial drug and its accelerated pathway to approval have made Congress take a closer look at the FDA. And they're doing so for good reason. Since 1992, nearly half, 112 of the 253 drugs given such approval have not been proven to extend life expectancy or improve quality of life.
0: What about the cancer drug you mentioned?
1: Chordelvy is a key drug in Gilead's oncology portfolio. Contrary to what you might assume, the company didn't do most of the R&D. Instead, the medication was developed by a, another firm, Immunomedics, from which Gilead purchased the rights, making it one of more than 30 cancer drugs that Gilead has acquired, not developed, through its own R&D process over the past five years. It's priced at $2,200 per vial. The 21-day cycle of the new breast cancer treatment cost $16,000 and it's produced an 11% revenue increase for Gilead in 2021, which led to a $19 million bonus for the company's CEO that year. I think what needs to be done is to ask, are the benefits from Trodelvi worth the price? And it's interesting. A company press release boasts a 49% reduction in the risk of death for patients who take the drug. Now, that would be worth the price. But that figure's misleading at best. In studies, the medication extended median overall survival from 6.9 months in the control group to 11.8 months. That's a 49% increase in survival, but not in cure. It makes it sound as though the patients taking the drug beat the cancer, when in reality, it means that they died less than five months after patients who took standard chemotherapy alone. Now, I'm not saying that an extra 150 days isn't important, but that's not the cure that patients desire and could potentially have with greater R&D investment. In fact, when we zoom out, and look at the 90-some new oncology drugs approved by the FDA this century? Try to guess the average gain in life expectancy. It was a mere 73 days. And cancer chemotherapy isn't without side effects and complications. In fact, much of the time is often spent in pain, dealing with debilitating side effects and being isolated from loved ones.
0: Are vaccines an exception to this drug development rule? You know,
1: Jeremy, this is a difficult and important question because the science behind vaccines, the remarkable science, needs to be celebrated and recognized. But we also need to understand that most of the time these drugs were brought to the market with relatively minimal risk for a big drug company. The federal government paid for much of the underlying development costs through decades of NIH funding and research. And the federal government minimized the risk to companies by fronting $18 billion as part of Operation Warp Speed. So what I would say is it is a great advance and it is at the cutting edge of what science can accomplish but it's not a true exception to what we're saying. Once the company had a means of minimizing the risks, then it went ahead and brought the products to marketplace. And we should be very grateful for it, but not be misled that it's a sign of a shift into the pharmacological world of priorities.
0: Are the only issues relative to this rule on maximizing profits by minimizing risk ones related to price and efficacy? This is a great question, Jeremy,
1: because there's another negative outcome from this rule that most people don't recognize. With rare exception, the lure of being able to charge exorbitantly high prices, we're talking about $2.1 million in one case, and generating huge profits more than any other industry sector, distort research priorities. As a result, pharmaceutical companies ignore many of the biggest areas of clinical need. You know, consider antibiotics. This is a drug category that remains extremely under-researched and underfunded. Public health officials agree that antibiotic resistance threatens our entire modern medical system. Nationwide, drug-resistant bugs are becoming a growing problem, putting millions of lives at risk. It's inevitable that patients will die from infections that currently are treated with antibiotics, but are going to become resistant to all of the currently available ones in the future, and we will have nothing to provide to patients with these diseases unless drug companies can discover the next generation of antibiotic medications. But there's a problem. Antibiotic medications are not very profitable. First, they're usually prescribed for a relatively short amount of time, 7 to 14 days. And second of all, a true breakthrough drug would be reserved. And so the number of patients being given the medication would be relatively small, and it would only be those individuals who were already resistant to all the other medications, making the total revenue sale and profitability small. That's why identifying a new class of antibiotics is financially risky. And unlike with the cancer drugs that are priced at $120,000 to $150,000 a year, or the biological drugs used for various chronic illnesses, the upside financial risk to drug companies is small enough that the research is left on a back burner As a result, right now, more than 600 cancer drugs are being tested for clinical use while there are no breakthrough antibiotics in the pipeline or on the horizon. Any last observations? Jeremy, for the past two decades, life expectancy in the United States has stalled. Our nation needs better, safer, more effective medications, but drug companies won't develop them until the industry inverts its focus. Rather than prioritizing minimizing drug development risk, drug companies need to prioritize maximizing the impact the next generation of medications can have on human lives. But simply breaking the rule on drug development, that won't be enough. Even if drug companies get their priorities right and focus on creating medications that will save the most lives, A growing number of Americans won't be able to avail themselves of these medications until another rule of the drug industry is broken. That rule defines how drug companies decide to price the newest medications. Let's focus on this challenge in next month's Diving Deep episode of Fixing Healthcare.
0: We hope you enjoyed this podcast and tell your friends and colleagues about it. Fixing Healthcare is now a weekly podcast posted each Sunday night. Please follow Fixing Healthcare on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or your favorite podcast app. If you like the show, please rate it five stars and leave a review. Visit our website at FixingHealthcarePodcast.com and follow us on LinkedIn, Facebook, and Twitter at podcast. Thank you for listening to Fixing Healthcare's newest series, Diving Deep with Dr. Robert Pearl and Jeremy Corr. Have a great day.